You're listening to the Catholic Fragments Podcast, where we explore the treasures of Catholicism, the fullness of truth revealed in Jesus Christ and His Church. I'm your host, Dr. Donald Wallenfang, and I invite you to join me in gathering up the fragments of the truth that sets us free. Pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 6. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh, and drinks my blood, has eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Catholic Fragments Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Donald Wallenfang. Today it's my great joy to get to lead us in a reflection on the sacrament of sacraments, the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, and the origin and history of this practice we call Eucharistic Adoration in the Church, adoring Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the sacrament of the Eucharist. I'm just thrilled to get to think about this with you, and I've done a bit of digging into this history of the Eucharist with special reference to a very helpful essay by 20th century American Catholic Jesuit theologian John A. Hardin called The History of Eucharistic Adoration, Development of Doctrine in the Catholic Church. And this is the first thing we have to realize about the practice of Eucharistic adoration even though it has great precedent in the biblical texts, it does involve this development of doctrine over the centuries of the church. As the church grows in her understanding of this mystery of the Eucharist and the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. As Father John Hardin says, the Eucharistic elements the body and blood of Christ, are literally Jesus Christ continuing his saving mission among men. But we must go back to the biblical roots of this phenomenon, first of all with his mother, our blessed mother, St. Mary, mother of Jesus, mother of God. Mary, the adorer of her son Jesus par excellence. Mary as not only mother, but also we could think of as mezuzah, and monstrance, the one who bears the living Torah in her own flesh, 
and reveals him to the world. St. Mary, the first adorer of the word become flesh. And then all these nativity narratives we read, especially in the Gospels of St. Matthew and St. Luke, about the adoration of the humble shepherds who come to find this newborn king of the Jews. This high point of God's revelation to humanity as well as the Magi from the East who travel long and far to discover this new king of the Jews, to adore him, to lay down before him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We think too of St. John the Baptist who points out the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who adores him in his own martyrdom, who adores him in his ceaseless proclamation of the Messiah, diverting the direction of attention from himself to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is worthy of our adoration, so worthy that St. John the Baptist says he's not worthy to untie his sandals. As St. John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Also, the Last Supper event itself, as we read across the Gospels, where Jesus takes bread and makes it his body. Jesus takes wine and makes it his blood. And we think of the beloved disciple, St. John the Apostle and Evangelist, from whose Gospel we read the opening prayer, the beloved disciple who reclined on the sacred heart of Jesus at this supper. Going to the Gospel of St. Mark, we read the Greek, the words of institution, the words of consecration, the Greek rendition. Presumably Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic in this context, but in any case, the Greek translation, which makes the message known to the world, Jesus saying, Labete tuto estin to soma mu, tuto estin to haimamu, tes diatekes to ekonominon, huperpolon. Take, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which will be poured out for many. We worship Jesus in the Eucharist because he said this is himself. This is my body. This is my blood. This is me. So we worship him. It stands to reason. It's logical that God would not come and touch down on earth for 30 some years and then depart. But Jesus himself says at the, at the end of the Gospel of St. Matthew, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. This is how he remains with us in word and sacrament, especially his real presence in the Eucharist. This is the heart of Christian worship, of Christian faith, of Christian discipleship. Then the next generation of Christians following that of the apostolic era Saints like Ignatius of Antioch, Justin the Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, 
What do they have to say about the Eucharist? This liturgy that they would celebrate in homes and underground in the catacombs when Christianity was illegal in the Mediterranean world and elsewhere in the Roman Empire. And even to this day, it's illegal in some parts of the world. But nevertheless, these people of faith would gather for a representation, a reenactment, a remembering, a making present once again of what Jesus makes present at the Last Supper. As St. Albert the Great says, the deepest love desires to give itself as food for the beloved. This is what Jesus does in the Eucharist. So St. Ignatius of Antioch, around the year 110 AD, who is Bishop of Antioch, a place that St. Peter had been Bishop earlier, St. Ignatius, on the way to his martyrdom, being eaten alive by lions, says this about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins, and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. This is from his letter to the Smyrnians. He clearly believed that this sacrament was the true flesh and blood of Jesus, the same flesh that suffered for our sins, the same flesh which God the Father raised up from the dead. And St. Justin the Martyr, who lived between around 100 and 165 AD, says this about the Eucharist in his first apology. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished, is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. St. Justin, who also died for this faith, believed with all of his being that this Eucharist is the true flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. And then St. Irenaeus of Lyon, around the years 140 to 202 AD, living, another martyr of the early church, Bishop of Lyon, says this, When therefore the mixed cup and the baked bread receives the word of God and becomes the Eucharist, the body of Christ, and from these the substance of our flesh is increased and supported, how can they say that the flesh is not capable of receiving the gift of God which is eternal life, flesh which is nourished by the body and blood of the Lord, receiving the word of God, becomes the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. This is in his work called Against Heresy, St. Irenaeus of Lyon. All of these early bishops, martyrs, saints of the church, speak in this way about the Eucharist. There was no question to them what was handed on to them. This is the true flesh and blood of Jesus, made present by the words of consecration in the liturgical prayer that was handed on to them, 
and that this is the real presence of Christ, the real substance, the united substances of Jesus, at once divine and human. Then in the first three centuries of the church, there's plenty of historical evidence that those desert hermits who left everything to follow Christ in those solitary spaces of desert and cave, they reserved the Eucharist in their cells, caves, and hermitages where they lived. They adored Christ in the Eucharist in the early centuries of the church. Another interesting point in the early church is something called the rite of fermentum. Fermentum, this Latin word that means leaven, particularly the leaven of unity in the church, attested as early as the year 120 AD. This was a rite within the liturgy of the Eucharist in which a particle of the consecrated host, sometimes dipped in the chalice, was transported from the bishop of one diocese to the bishop of another diocese. The receiving bishop would consume the particle of the consecrated host at his next mass. Sometimes bishops would do the same for their priests. And today, the Eucharistic fragment is dropped into the chalice during the liturgy in the Roman rite, still symbolizing the unity of the church. This practice of the fermentum rite shows that there is an adoration of the Eucharist and it shows the power of the real presence of Christ uniting bishops in different territories, uniting the church because this is the true body and blood of Christ. St. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians. He says, the bread that we break is this not a koinonia, in the body of Christ, a participation, a sharing, a communion, a fellowship. The cup that we share is this not a koinonia in the blood of Christ. Yes, it is. All the early Christians believed this. Later on in monastic life, monks received the privilege of carrying the Eucharist with them, even while working in the fields or traveling. And as early as the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, the Eucharist was reserved in monasteries in order to bring the Blessed Sacrament to the sick and to repose the fermentum between Masses. So then the practice of reserving the Eucharist in a tabernacle gradually increases as the Eucharistic species were to be kept under lock and key to prevent profanation by mice and impious men. Then in the year 1078, we have a very clear and firm reiteration of the Church's faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In light of a heresy that was emerging, stemming from an archdeacon of Angers in France, Berengarius, who denied that Christ was really and physically present under the species of bread and wine. And others started taking up this false idea and writing about the Eucharistic Christ as not exactly the Christ of the Gospels, or by implication, not actually there. So then Pope Gregory 
Saint Gregory VII, in the year 1078, in response to this growing confusion about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, says this, I believe in my heart and openly profess that the bread and wine placed upon the altar are, by the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of the Redeemer, substantially changed into the true and life-giving flesh and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord, and that after the consecration, there is present the true body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin and offered up for the salvation of the world, hung on the cross, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, and that there is present the true blood of Christ, which flowed from his side, they are present not only by means of a sign and of the efficacy of the sacrament, but also in the very reality and truth of their nature and substance. So Pope St. Gregory VII makes it very clear. This is what the Church believes. And Pope St. Paul VI in the year 1965 would renew these very same words of the Universal Church's belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, which implies the practice of adoring the Blessed Sacrament, which did increase in that 11th century following the bold and reassuring profession of faith of Gregory VII. Then fast forward into the 13th century, where we see Pope Urban IV establishing an annual feast of Corpus Christi for the Universal Church, and at the same time, he asked St. Thomas Aquinas to compose hymns for the Mass and Divine Office. And St. Thomas, in turn, composed the hymns that are well known today in Latin with Gregorian chant, Adoro te devote, O salutaris hostia, Pange lingua, Tantum ergo, Panis angelicus, all of which are sung to this day. These hymns of St. Thomas illuminate the doctrinal truths about the Eucharist in terms of real presence, sacrifice, and communion. And again, it stands to reason that the Eucharist would neither be a true sacrifice nor achieve true communion unless it was the real presence of Jesus. And just to take an English translation of his opening verse of Adoro Te Devote, I devoutly adore you, hidden deity, who are truly hidden beneath these figures. My whole heart submits to you, because in contemplating you, all else is deficient. So we follow the history of this belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, handed on from generation to generation in the Church. We read the likes of this profession of faith in Pope Clement VI in the year 1351, Pope Martin V in 1425, then Pope Julius III in the Council of Trent in 1551, where we read in the conciliar text, The only begotten Son of God is to be adored in the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist with the worship of Latria, including external worship. The sacrament, therefore, is to be honored with extraordinary festive celebrations and solemnly carried from place to place in processions according to the praiseworthy universal rite and custom of the Holy Church. The sacrament is to be publicly exposed for the people's adoration. Latria, this praise that is due only to God. 
not the kind of veneration that would be given to the saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary, which itself is not worship per se, but merely veneration and deep respect. But Latria is the praise, the worship of God alone. And this, Pope Julius III and the Council of Trent, the Council Fathers say, is to be given and aimed at Christ and his real presence in the Eucharist. Further in the documents of the Council of Trent, we read, in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ. So the church teaches whether it is the sacred body of Christ in the Eucharist or the precious blood, the whole Christ is contained in both of them and either of them body, blood, soul, and divinity. Then Pope Clement VIII, in the year 1592, establishes this practice of 40 hours of continual prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, exposed in what's called the monstrance. It is a vessel of precious metals that makes the Eucharist visible for people to gaze on Christ and to be gazed at by him. And following this Council of Trends, many religious institutes and associations were formed with the purpose of perpetual adoration of the Eucharist. Recently, I was also reading from a book by Benedictine, a priest and monk, Nathan Mitchell, called Cult and Controversy, The Worship of the Eucharist Outside Mass. And this book was published by Liturgical Press in the year 1982. And the Pueblo Publishing Company imprint. It's a very well written book. And toward the end of the book, Father Mitchell is talking about the power of the gaze, the personal gaze, the gazes between persons who love one another. And he gets into some of the uh, psychology studies of Eric Erickson in the life of children. And Erickson notes that vision becomes the leading perceptual as well as emotional modality for the organization of a sensory and sensual space as marked by the infant's interplay with the primal person, usually the mother. So vital is vision to the child's sense of reality that seeing may even outdistance the infant's need for food and comfort. And this has been demonstrated in various psychology experiments with infant persons. And Erickson reflects on these studies that the human being, which at the beginning wants, in addition to the fulfillment of oral and sensory needs, to be gazed upon by the primal parent and to respond to the gaze, to look up to the parental countenance and to be responded to, continues to look up and to look for somebody to look up to. And that 
is somebody who will, in the very act of returning his glance, lift him up. Beautiful lines, thinking about that relationship between parent and child, especially between the mother and the infant. Think of the mother nursing and gazing up at the mother. That the infant yearns for this very act of returning his glance to lift him up. Father Mitchell goes on to say that the fundamental human ritual of seeing and being seen, of gazing and being gazed upon, lies at the root of all subsequent ritualization. Erickson suggests that this is so because of an inborn human need for regular and mutual affirmation and certification. So this is something that adoration of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament gives to us who yearn to be looked at and lifted up, to be affirmed in the goodness of our being as God created us, to be certified as children of God, as being made in God's image. This is what is granted to us as we approach Christ and his real presence in the blessed sacrament of the Eucharist. And finally, just a quote from two recent popes on this practice of adoring Christ in the Eucharist. Pope St. John Paul II, in his 2003 encyclical on the Eucharist, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, the Church from the Eucharist, the Church living from the Eucharist. John Paul II calls Eucharistic adoration an inexhaustible source of holiness. So if we want to become more holy as followers of Christ, this is an inexhaustible source. All we need to do is draw near to Christ in the Eucharist, whether in the tabernacle concealed or exposed for us to gaze upon in the monstrance and exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. All we need to do is draw near to Him, and He does something to transform us, to transfigure us more according to his image. And then Pope Francis, in his 2013 apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, has this to say, without prolonged moments of adoration, of prayerful encounter with the word, of sincere conversation with the Lord, our work easily becomes meaningless. We lose energy as a result of weariness and difficulties, and our fervor dies out. The church urgently needs the deep breath of prayer, and to my great joy, groups devoted to prayer and intercession, the prayerful reading of God's word, and the perpetual adoration of the Eucharist are growing at every level of ecclesial life. So hearing these words of Pope Francis, Pope St. John Paul II, are very encouraging, leading us to adore Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament all the more. The Blessed Sacrament of the altar. He gives himself to us to the point of abandonment without remainder. And all that he asks of us is to come and receive all that he has prepared for us from before the dawn of time. 
Thank you for joining me on the Catholic Fragments podcast, where you are equipped to think toward the whole, to pray from the heart, and to live as a witness.